Radio, a division of Torah to the nations. Welcome back. You are listening to the Wednesday morning program, and we have a very special guest today, don't we, Miriam? Dina Dye, and she is a, an author, conference speaker, a all around. I don't. I, I won't go into her whole bio again on this segment, but she is a, a researcher, and she knows her stuff, and. We're happy to have her on the program, and before the break, we were talking about Noah's Ark and some very interesting concepts that she was bringing out regarding that. So, it's all yours, Dina. Okay, yeah, so uh, it's it's really a replay of the creation story, Genesis chapter 1, because you think about God is creating sacred space, the cosmos, and he's filling it with these various things, with the you know animals and plants and trees and all that sort of to, to sort of create this very orderly, stable world. Remember, I, I mentioned about this this fixed point. So the dry land, the mountain, is is the fixed point. It's the it's the place of stability, um, and that's really important because that's the place where God moves. And so it's a it what Noah's Ark looks like is a mini world of the creation, right? Because it's got the three. It's a three-tiered cosmos, if you will, heaven, earth, and sea. It's very clear that it mentions there's three levels. And so and it's a place filled with animals or living creatures. And so it's a mini Genesis chapter one. So the idea of what he's doing is restoring the cosmos from its depravity, from its contamination, you know, violence and all that sort of stuff. So it's filling the ark in that same way. And again, Noah's replaying Adam's role in the garden. So we see Adam peacefully abiding with the animals in paradise, right? Noah, and Noah's doing the same thing. And that's what it's talking about in Isaiah when the lion lies down with the lamb, etc. It's a replay of the creation. It's a replay of the creation story. And, you know, we want to look at everything, sort of future, when is this all going to happen? But we need to kind of go back to the past and find out what does the original thing look like? Because everything else is going to repeat after that. And that, you know, just as an aside here, that's one of the reasons that you find with these tyrannical uh, ideologies is they always want to remove the past. They don't want to, you, they do not want you to be able to find your root, your foundation from which you have built. They want to completely tear it up. So just as a, a thought there. And so we, we're just, we find um, so many of the, uh, of the scholars have come to this conclusion. Uh, you know, when I was starting to do my research, I thought, well, this is going to be a piece of cake because there's hardly anything written about Noah's Ark. I could not be more wrong. Uh, there may not be whole books, but I literally have 75 articles on mm -hmm. this that I've gone through. So, you know, another thing is you see the shape of the ark is rectangular, which is the shape of, of the tabernacle, for example. So the tabernacle actually is, is a replay, if you will, of the ark. 
And, and uh, you know, we find that this is, you can find this in the ancient e Egyptian world, etc. I won't go into all of that. But there's a connection between ark and tabernacle, which and eventually tabernacle and temple. So you go from cosmos to garden to ark to tabernacle to temple. That's the process. And always creating a sacred space for the presence of God. And it's oriented and designed similarly, you know, as you go through all of the different ones. And again, this idea of the, the tripartite structure that represented heaven and earth and sea, we see that in the ark. And then when we jump ahead to the Exodus and the children of Israel at the mountain, Mount Sinai, remember, this, the, the mountain represents that stable, fixed place on top would be a, a temple. So you see Moses entering into the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai, uh, which represents sort of the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, you know, temple-like stuff. And then halfway down, you have the, the elders, right? And, uh, and then at the bottom, you have the people. So that vertical view, heaven, earth, and sea. It just, it's everywhere present all over scripture once you kind of start seeing it. Uh, it's also very interesting. Uh, the Hebrew word for ark is teva. And uh, this is one of my little things. If, if you rearrange uh, the letters of teva, and actually, if you put them backwards, it's habayit. <laughs> it's the house. house. It's kind of yeah. just an interesting <laughs> aside. But okay. only other place Teva is used is for no, uh, for Moses. So right. the, the quote-unquote basket that isn't a basket. We'll talk about that in a second. So mm -hmm. the question, uh, it talks about the, th the three different uh, materials that are used to, to make Noah's Ark. And so we have the wood. We don't know what kind of wood. It says gopher. Some people think it's cedar wood, cypress. We don't really know. The second word that's used, it'll say it'll have rooms. And there's a question about whether that's the actual word. Um, that's, it's translated rooms, but it could be the Hebrew word kana, or the, the plural is kinim, which is reeds. Okay, so it's looking like it could be a reed boat as well and then of course it's covered with pitch right the bitumen yeah, to keep yeah. it to make it waterproof and yeah, we have yeah. this, the same language in all of the flood stories with uh, Gilgamesh and Atrahasis and um, well, what's the other guy's name I can't think of it but anyways all of their boats were made out of the same thing so it's possible that it was a reed boat and so Moses is you know we got this vision of this little basket floating down the the Nile River <laughs> And uh, it's, they think the word Teva is of Egyptian origin and not Mesopotamian. And I don't make a definitive point on this because whether the story comes out of Mesopotamia or comes out of Egypt, um, the basis for the story is pretty well the same. But the Teva is as translated as like a chest uh, an ark, a coffin, something like that. So you look at Noah's ark, it doesn't look like a boat, okay? I mean, it doesn't right. have or any sail or any navigation. Like, that doesn't make sense for those people. They could only travel up and down the Euphrates or the Nile with a sail, right? So here's this right. thing. <laughs> so there's just, uh, you know, we got to put it in its in its perspective perspective so they made these boats back then uh both in mesopotamia and egypt out of uh, grass uh reeds and they made their sailboats out of that and they would 
float down uh, the river. Um, so, but these reed huts or these reed boats came, the material they used for the reed boat would come from a reed temple. Okay, so where whatever temple they had made, they made with reeds. It was to the gods. And then when they were going to make a boat, they would tear it down and they would use the materials to make a boat. So reed huts and boats were always tied to the gods. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And in particular, yeah. uh, in Egypt, the god that it was tied to is a guy named Horus. And I don't have time to go into his story, but suffice to say, Horus's story is identical to, to Moses's story in how Moses was rescued from uh, Pharaoh, from being you know, drowned in the Nile, and then, um, you know, mom <laughs> reserved him, made this little boat, if you will, and put him in it. But so there was an effort in the story that the Israelites had was to upend or overturn or deconstruct the story that Egypt had of Horus. And Horus, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt was the incarnation of this god Horus. So these reed hut shrine things were very important in the ancient world. So now envision the princess daughter of Pharaoh going down to the river and there's this reed boat thing and she somehow opens it up and there's Moses <laughs> instead right. of what she would have expected to see, Horus. Right? She would have expected right. to see the god Horus, but instead there's this Hebrew baby in there. So, you know, that was a big, I mean, we don't even look at it like that, but that was a really big deal. So, of course, taking him back to the palace where the pharaoh was the incarnation of Horus on the, the reed shrine boat. And they would sail these boats from town to town. Uh, so that their whole thing was going from one city on the on the river to the next city on the river, so people could come out and worship the god. Like it's just, if we don't do this kind of background information, uh, we really miss the essence of the story. And so, this makes Moses even more larger than life to me than he was, because he is he is taking down the world of the gods, and God is going. This is my representative on earth. This is my, quote, king, if you will, that will rule. And he will rule righteously and he will save his people. So Moses is kind of replaying the Noah thing because Noah was called as, as the line of the king to save his people and build this possibly re giant reed hut. <laughs> but all of this, again, is building this, this temple, this language as a place for the presence of God so that his people could come approach him and worship him. Now, you didn't do that really so much with, with the ancient gods. They were, you know, lording it over you, and, and they only had, um, you know, they were, they were out for, and let me just mention, too, I mean, the world of the gods isn't real. I hope everybody understands that. Sometimes I forget to say that. You know, it's really a structure, it's really a political structure of the, of the ancient world. And so these people are worshiping all this stuff, but these people, these are people, you know, they're not, we don't have these gods floating around in, in space. I hope everybody understands that. Right, but anyways, right. and of course they put the tar, the bitumen on and, and, and seal, seal it up so that it, it wouldn't, uh, uh, you know, get water in it. And so all of this, you know, I tie all of this together 
uh, in it to help people understand there's a there's a bigger picture and that God is deconstructing the world of the nations. That's what he does over and over and over again. You think it's this way? I'm going to show you there's only one true God and this is how it operates. And I'm going to take down your gods. And when we talk about my series in the next section, I'll talk about what, you know, how the plagues in Egypt operated and what was really going on there. So I just going to say, I was just going to say, this has got to tie into all the plagues and tearing down all the plagues. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was their whole world, and God is basically upending the world of the gods, that, that false, fake world. He's, he's bringing it down, and it's so we can, you know, we can make the application today. So we look at the power structure today of the gods of today. The global elites are the gods of, the, of today, and they have all the power and all the control. Uh, they have all the levers of power. They, every, there's not anywhere in our lives that they don't control. And yet God sent, you know, Noah and God sent Abraham and God sent Moses and God sent Yeshua, the Messiah. Yeshua did the same thing to the powers in Rome. You know, they thought it was, I mean, he was, they were going to take this guy down, right? He was a threat power. And yet God took, you know, a humble man and his son and he upended the entire power structure of Rome. Now he didn't tear down the military and you know what I mean all that sort of thing but he was operating in a different way to help the people live in this environment that was tyrannical that's what he does because Israel has lived under tyrannical rule since the beginning of time they only had like 500 years in which they weren't living under tyranny and even when they were living under their own kings their own kings were tyrannical yes right so even Solomon ended up being tyrannical in the end. Exactly, exactly. So God is always, I think we need to, to uh, be hopeful and trust in the Lord. He can tear down this entire thing. Now he won't, he's not going to do it the way we think it should be done. We just should right, say right. that. <laughs> the gate. Yeah. But he has a vehicle to do it. And he is not going to just do it with his own power, if you know what I mean. He, he doesn't do the wave the magic wand, you know, erase the slate and everything's good. He uses his people that he has called by his name to do the work on his behalf. And so let that be an encouragement. You have work to do out there. You can't just hide in your house and pretend this is all going to go away. You have a job to do as part of restoring the cosmos. He works with his right. people to do that. Well, and I, th- I think there's a, a tendency for believers to just sit back and, well, Messiah's coming soon, so that means we don't have to do anything. We're just going to wait till he gets here and straightens it out. But we are to occupy until he comes, and we are to take territory and expand the kingdom to the best of our ability, and, and that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and wait. Right. Amen. And I would add, we will be occupying after he comes. Yes. So we have this thing like, he's just going to come, and he's going to just like go, I don't know, <laughs> pow, it's all going to be different. Yeah. That, uh, that ain't how it works, okay? You have a job, you have a task, you've been called, you've been given gifts and talents to restore order in society and to make things good for everyone. That is your job. Whether they are believers or not, you have a role to play. 
So we have just sort of wiped our hands of it, you know, brushed the dust off our feet, went home and said, I'm just going to hang out here till it all gets good. I'm sorry. Or also discouraged and getting discouragement and just, you know, saying, become then a victim. Yes. Yeah. And really the joy in all of it is the work that you do to make something successful. And, And that's the reward is how much you pour in to work and to make it, you know, and to make it work. So when you don't work and you're given something, I mean, how appreciative are you of that gift? Right. I can relate it to writing a book. I have to say it's the worst thing in the world. I can't stand writing books. It's awful. It's hard. I mean, it's a slog. I work day in and day out. I'm making like one cent a word, you know. I mean, it's it's tough. <laughs> but I'll tell you, when that thing's done and it's been published and people are buying it, there is no substitute for the sense of gratification and just how empowered I, I, what I experience and how I feel on having worked so hard and to see this finished product. And so the kingdom is the same way. You know, you don't get to put your feet up and wait for someone else to do it. And that's the reason. There's no retirement. (laughs) Yeah. There's no retirement in the kingdom. Right. So I just want to be an encouragement. You know, people, if you've been sitting around and you're just waiting for someone else to do it, stop. It's time for you to find the thing that you can do to advance the kingdom. Well, don't you think also, and I know we're going to go into this in the next hour, but that's also, you know, how important we were talking about how important community is and about assembling together and how there is such power when we come together and we pray and we worship and we use our gifts and we learn and we fellowship together. And all that was stopped for a long time or tried to be stopped. Oh, there's no question, and we will talk about that more, but you think about God is always building a place for his presence. It's kind of like Groundhog Day. You know, he starts with creation, and he, you know, he constructs the garden, and then we go into Noah, he gives Noah the the plans to build the the temple, and then, of course, Israel, Moses, and the the guys to build the, the, excuse me, the ark, then the tabernacle, and then the temple. So now we don't have a standing temple, So God, but God is still building a place for his presence, and that's in the midst of his people. So he's still building a house. He's still restoring the cosmos. Um, but, you know, we, we have a responsibility in that. And so that, that idea of community now is even more important in some ways than it ever was, although, you know, the ancients understood community way better than we do and their role and purpose in that community. But... And I think that's been part of the problem is we don't really understand how the community functions as a temple, as a place for his presence. So I think the more we understand that, we, un- we understand that we must work together and, and not work as opposing forces. Because the, the nature of, of, of groups now, everything is about how you divide the group, not on how you n- unite the group. Like everything we're seeing in the United States you know, the other side, the enemy, is uh, in, incredibly gifted at how to tear things down and divide things up. And so we need to be the counter for that. Right. Well, yeah. you know, as you were speaking, one thing that I, it keeps coming to my mind, and I want to I ask you this before we get further, but when you were talking about the destruction of uh, the upending the gods, you know, and now, now we have the... Um, 
so-called elites. I don't like to call them elites because to me, elite means something different than what they are. But, <laughs> but anyway, you have those that are controlling everything. And then, you know, where my mind went, Dina, was to uh, the Antichrist, you know, because the spirit of Antichrist was alive and well in the earth uh, when Yeshua was on the earth and upended, you know, that antichrist kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so the gods that we worship and, and all of that or have worshipped, you know, um, are basically the spirit of antichrist. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you could literally, you know, it's not really used very much in the Bible, that term. I think, what's first, second John, first John? I mean, you don't, it's right. not in Revelation. Um, I think you have to put that concept back into its proper context, uh, which has to do with temple building. And we go all the way back to the garden. And so the first uh, one that would oppose order and create chaos is going to be the serpent. I mean, that is the nature of Antichrist. Mm -hmm. It's one who right. would, you know, uh, oppose order, <laughs> you know, well, stop order and create chaos. So that the serpent does that in the garden. And you can just go through all the varying narratives and you can find this uh, spirit as, you know, as you have, have called it to create chaos. So that's our battle. You know, our battle is against, you know, a chaos, which is manifested right. through some sort of incarnation of somebody. So in, I maintain that the serpent in the garden, this is my opinion, uh, isn't really an actual animal, but is a representative of some sort of king, okay, who wants to upend the order of, of God's kingdom because he has his own kingdom. So, you know, that for sure, that, that um, thread takes us all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So uh, personally, I'm not looking, this is my personal opinion, but I'm not looking for some one person to come along and who is called the Antichrist. You know, mm -hmm. I'm looking at a, a structure, a power structure that personifies that. And, and I think we could all say today it's a lot more obvious than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all, all of that right. created chaos for the whole world. And what it's done, what what that spirit always does is destroy the vulnerable, the innocent, and the weak. Mm -hmm. Those that have no voice, those that, and so our job is to fit the gap for them. Mm -hmm. right. So that's well, and and then, like you pointed out in the ancient world, Horus and some of those false gods represented all of that. Yeah. And that's why that's why uh, God upended them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because no one will will take his place. You know, he the the very nature of God is pure, unadulterated order. Like, and of course, we don't even really know what that looks like because you're you know through all of history, you're you're see the the other thing is you're always dealing with you're always moving from chaos to order. You don't get to a place and it's this. And you stop and it's over, which is, is a great thing because we don't want to be remain in a state of chaos. So it's nothing static. It's always sort of shifting. And the reason it shifts is because of God's people. We either allow chaos to come in because we don't exercise our authority under God, or we do bring order because we are in covenant with him and we are, you know, 
his, his promises and how he's established his covenant, we are imparting that into the world. So you're always going through this sort of shifting thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? And right. so it seems to me that when Messiah comes to finally, you know, restore everything, perhaps it is the case that that is the end of, of chaos's term, if you will. Does that make sense? Yes, and I mm -hmm. think also as Deborah knows, a psychiatrist in that, that some people are so comfortable with chaos, and when the peace comes, they don't, they they don't know how to handle it, and they want to go back to the chaos because that's what they're comfortable with. Yeah. You couldn't be more right. We'll be back. Hebrew Nation Radio Online.